This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. We have a case to hear this morning, so we'll call the parties now. In the case of um, Canadian Copyright Licensing Agency against York University and between York University and Canadian Copyright Licensing Agency. The Supreme Court of Canada recently brought a lengthy legal battle between Access Copyright and York University to an end, issuing a unanimous verdict written by retiring Justice Rosalie Abella that resoundingly rejected the Copyright Collective's claims that its tariff is mandatory, finding that it had no standing to file a lawsuit for copyright infringement on behalf of its members, and concluding that a lower court fair dealing analysis that favored Access Copyright was tainted. The decision removes any doubt that the Supreme Court remains strongly supportive of users' rights and vindicates years of educational policy in shifting away from access copyright toward alternative means of ensuring compliance with copyright law. Kim Nyer is the Edward Cornell Law Librarian, Associate Dean for Library Services, and Professor of the Practice at Cornell Law School. She appeared before the Supreme Court in this case, representing the Canadian Association of Law Libraries as an intervener. She joins me on the podcast to talk about the Access Copyright York case and its implications for the future of copyright, education, and collective rights management. Kim, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, it's great to have you on. And uh, it comes, I think, at a, at a really notable time. As, as you know, of course, uh, one of Canada's longest running copyright sagas came to a close late last month as the Supreme Court of Canada issued its decision in the York University Access Copyright case. Court certainly didn't waste any time. The ruling came just over two months after the hearing, and the unanimous decision was written by Justice Abella. And this case was, of course, the, the last case she heard on the court before, before her retirement uh, just at the end of June. Now, I'd like to get into the Supreme Court decision, but there may be some listening that, that don't have a lot of familiarity with the case. So why don't we start a little bit with the background? You know, what, what is access copyright and, and what led us to the point that it was locked in litigation with York University? Yeah, it is a, an interesting background and, and a long-running case, and it basically sort of encompasses my um, joining the post-secondary sector from, from legal practice prior to that. Um, so Access Copyright, uh, it, it's a collective licensing society that arose out of something that was earlier called CanCopy. Um, and that was a solution essentially to, um, to compensation for a wide range of copyright holders for copying by universities or people in universities. So can copy arose in an era that was um, where, where a lot of paper copying was done. And it was also um, a different era of library acquisitions. So the materials that libraries held for universities were um, largely in print format. Uh, so really it was a, an efficient way. I think that both of uh, can copy and uh, subscribing or, or um, participating institutions found uh, to be an efficient way of clearing permissions at a then um, what I understand was a reasonable and, and representative cost for the participants in, in the collective licensing tariff arrangements um, using negotiation and, and board approval for a tariff. Um, so that, that's the background of 
uh, access copyright. And um, you know, I don't speak on behalf of York, of course, but I'm aware that from my, my own having been in a post-secondary institution in Canada in a library at the time, I'm aware that many institutions did begin to have difficulty with that collective licensing regime, the collective society um, tariffs. And, and at a point to think about a decade or so ago, um, the rates for licenses increased dramatically per student. And I think the numbers at the time of the conclusion of the last tariff was something like um, $3.38 a student. And then there was a small amount per page for course back fees. Um, and that went up to a blanket license of 20, a blanket fee of 24.80 per student. So a big jump. And that's around the time that I actually joined the post-secondary sector. And that was a, a big topic of conversation. Um, and, but at the same time, when you look at it from the university perspective or you know, the library perspective, and of course I work in a library in, in uh, a university and I did at the time as well, universities were subscribing to their resources through um, other means than, um, than the, re the uh, repertoire that was covered by the access copyright regime. Um, so some were using different consortia and aggregator licenses for electronic resources. Others were working directly with publishers or copyright owners for electronic format materials. So they were already paying license fees for different kinds of materials. And then at the same time, the influence of the CCH decision back in 2004 began to become better understood. Um, and educational institutions and their libraries began to think about um, fair dealing and developing guidelines to ensure that dealing or copyright copying was done um, fairly uh, in compliance with fair dealing rights in the Copyright Act. Um, and uh, in, you know, in develop, developing those guidelines at the time of this case, um, they could also look at new educational provisions that were added to the Copyright Act in 2012. Okay, so a lot of uh, yeah, a, a lot of change taking place. Some some from within the law, certainly with the CCH case. But yeah. uh, and uh, but I'm really glad you you referenced the the change in the way that materials were being accessed, the emergence uh, of, uh, of digital yeah. materials in yeah. particular, so that there were alternatives uh, along the way, and that and many institutions were finding those to be a more cost effective, uh, perhaps even a better just way of of accessing materials that were needed on campus. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It just became a, a huge part of the way universities were doing business to acquire resources. And, you know, as somebody who worked directly in the library, that was, I, I was really well aware of that, of that distinction and the growing irrelevance, actually, in the repertoire. Yeah. So universities are paying for materials. They're just not paying it through the access copyright license. They're exactly. also They're also developing uh, these fair dealing guidelines, but obviously access copyright isn't happy. Uh, they want to, to see payment. They go to the copyright board. Can you talk a little bit about that process of the copyright board, which of course then leads to the tariff and, and York ultimately saying, we've got these alternatives. We're not paying this particular tariff. Yeah. So that was, um, you know, and, and the institution that I was with at the time wasn't exited that process pretty uh, early. But from what I understand that 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 process of the tariff it, at the at the board was not um, that was not really <laughs> something again, for all the reasons that we talked about, the institutions, the universities were not finding that to be reasonable. It was not, a system that they wanted to really participate in any longer, given the modern way of acquiring 
research materials. So, um, you know, when it came to that tariff, it wasn't, it was something that many universities just looked at and decided to walk away from. Yeah, so universities walk away. The board does go ahead and set a tariff, though, really without the universities. Exactly, yes. Uh, yeah, the universities, though, and, and the universities don't pay access copyright, law, files a lawsuit uh, saying you, you're not paying, you're required to pay. Uh, York responds, as I understand, arguing that they have make a counterclaim effectively, saying that their guidelines that they have developed help address some of these issues as well. Is that, that essentially what both sides are arguing? Yes. And so, you know, the, the access, access copyrights position is that whether York or any other university had actually exited in an agreement or didn't participate in a tariff setting process, it didn't really matter. The context of the collective licensing provisions in the act, as well as the board actually setting a tariff from access copyrights perspective, that meant that any educational institution that was copying any works that were in its repertoire were those institutions were bound by that tariff. And then York, um, and, and I think other universities that were not actually part of this uh, litigation, their position and their view was that you, they couldn't be bound by it. They chose not to participate. They did not agree to participate in that tariff. Um, and they, they still, as we said earlier, they subscribed to other um, resources through other means. If they happen to produce, reproduce works by authors in access copyrights repertoire, they could do so by seeking permissions with those authors or with the owners of those copyrights, um, or they could rely on fair dealing, or they could choose on a voluntary basis to perhaps enter the tariff, but, but had not done so. So that, that is what under, you know, underlay York's uh, counterclaim for um, the fair dealing position. They, they wanted to assert this right, um, that, that fair dealing continued to cover the kinds of activities, uh, whether or not a tariff existed that others might have been bound to or have had agreed to, but that such a tariff not being mandatory upon them in their position um, didn't override any sort of fair dealing and that universities had done um, you know, a, a responsible action in developing fair dealing guidelines to help uh, the, act, the people who were actually doing the copying to understand what the scope and bounds of fair dealing were as interpreted, you know, as provided in section 29 of the act as, and interpreted in the subsequent Supreme Court case law. Sure. Okay. So that, that's helpful. So we've got on the one hand access, basically saying you don't have a choice here. Once, once the copyright board set a tariff, you must effectively be part of this. Uh, they say as long as something triggers use of the repertoire you're in, you're for one thing saying that can't possibly be right. You can't force some a license on someone in this way uh, and certainly not trigger it in a way that now everybody is, is subject to it in the way that you're describing. But mm -hmm. beyond that is arguing they're, they're acting responsibly. They are licensing in a number of different ways and they've established what they believe are fair dealing guidelines that are consistent with where, uh, what the Supreme Court of Canada has had to say. You know, before we get into what the courts have had to say through the, as we transitioned from, from the, low, the lower courts into the appellate courts, you know, one of the things that 
that is often raised, especially when it comes to lobbying the government, is to say that that much of this case and, and even the issue more broadly around educational copying stems from the reforms in 2012, the addition of education as a fair dealing factor. But I take it from the way you're describing it, this really predates in many ways what we saw in 2012, both with respect to the CCH case, as well as the, the evolution in many ways uh, of how materials were being accessed. Yeah. So, you know, that's always been my view on, on the matter, just looking at, um, so, you know, the relevant cases is, you know, CCH, really confirmed the user's right in reproduced material. It set out a multifactorial test, which, um, it, which underlies the fair dealing guidelines that many institutions use. Um, and and that, was, that was the law in place when the Alberta uh, Education and Access Copyright um, case was decided, which uh, supported the use, the copying at issue in that case was by teachers for the use of students. That case reiterated the user rights focus of CCH. Um, so in, in copying in the educational sector was permissible on the basis of fair dealing user rights in section 29 as interpreted by CCH. Um, so the legislative reforms of 2012 obviously could not have been considered in that Alberta education case because they hadn't yet been enacted. They didn't exist at the time of the activities that gave rise to the litigation there. Um, the provisions that you know, essentially might have been an, an issue had they existed um, are in a few provisions. The, the, the educational copying um, sections, I should say, are, are highly specific, but there is, you know, 30.02, 30.03, and perhaps 30.3 are uh, the sections that really would, would have some implication in a case where there's educational copying in the context of a tariff and a, or a collective society. So I think this case really was uh, you know, I think a lot of people were looking to it to um, to find out, uh, you know, if we set aside for a moment the tariff question or in a hypothetical situation that, there, that the tariff did apply, um, how would these new sections, um, how would this kind of conduct engage the interpretation of these new educational provisions? And so... You know, honestly, uh, when I when I looked at the the situation and the wording of the sections, I'm not certain how much the 2012 reforms really are implicated in the matter. Um, but that you know, that's I think what what many people were looking to this case to sort of to find out is how did those two things intersect. Sure. No, I think that I think that's fair. I mean, it is notable that that so much of this predates predates that, uh, particularly given a lot of the noise that we've seen around that particular reform and, and calls to, to scale things back within the act. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, that's really useful background. Why don't we jump then into the case? The first stop of course, is the federal court. We just, we just been describing access copyright, alleging infringement saying that uh, fair dealing, that the, the works weren't fair dealing. You've got to pay the, you've got to pay the rec the, the, the applicable tariff. You are counterclaiming by pointing to both the licensing they've got as well as fair dealing, and in particular their fair dealing guidelines, what does the federal court decide? So the, the trial judge, the federal court, um, agreed with access copyrights theory and, and found that York's activities in copying did actually engage the tariff. Um, they, the court also dealt with the York's counterclaim and, and found that um, its activities didn't constitute fair dealing under uh, section 29 
Um, and they also found that the, the guidelines, that, at least the guideline that York had in place at the time, uh, also didn't comply with Section 29 or the fair dealing provision of the Act. Okay, so slam dunk win for the for access copyright. I remember mm-hmm. uh, posting about it, and it was quite clear that the that the trial judge there was convinced uh, by access copyrights arguments and, and didn't have much sympathy for York's positions. The case, of course, is unsurprisingly appealed. I think it's fair to say either side would have appealed this case oh, always seemed uh, destined uh, this case always seemed destined to the Supreme Court no matter what the outcomes yes, were at the, absolutely at the low, yeah. in those low, in those lower court decisions fair dealing of course still a big issue at the at the federal court of appeal but the question about the tariff and its mandatory whether or not it can be mandatory or not really emerges as a huge issue and uh, Ariel Katz who was, who was on this podcast uh, some time ago talking about that Court of Appeal decision had done some really exceptional research, kind of unpacking the origins of these provisions and uh, identifying or making the case that, in fact, it was simply never envisioned that they would be mandatory. Um, can talk a bit about what the Court of Appeal has to say and and how they really picked up uh, on Katz's research in that outcome. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, Ariel Katz, uh, Professor Katz, he did some really good work in it in a couple of uh, pieces um, in the Intellectual Property Journal, as well as his blog. I you know, heard him on your program as well, um, speaking about this. But yeah, so the, the Federal Court of Appeal, um, they took pretty much the opposite view. They really did rely on that, that scholarship. They um, rejected the mandatory theory. Their holding was essentially that if a user chooses not to be licensed under a tariff, yet then makes an Authorized, unauthorized use of a work, um, that use is not, not governed by the tariff. Instead, the remedy is an infringement action. So, you know, if they hadn't, if when, when um, a user not covered by a tariff does the kinds of things that we've already talked about, uh, looks to fair dealing, ensures that, that its copying was covered by fair dealing or is otherwise covered by some other license or direct permissions, then they're on side. But if, if they're not for any reason, or if a copyright holder believes they are not, the remedy is an infringement action. Uh, access copyright, the way it's structured and set up, they don't actually represent individual authors. They, um, they're a, a license for reproduction of, of a repertoire of authors' works, but they cannot assert um, an infringement action on behalf of an author. They don't actually own any of that copyright. So, um, and they're not, you know, they're not an assignee. They're not, they don't have, hold an exclusive license to that work. So that was, um, you know, the basis on which the federal court said access copyright doesn't have the ability to prevent York from making any copying or to seek reimbursement. Um, it, it, you know, so it, it essentially um, disposed of that issue by saying, by you know, subscribing to the voluntary versus mandatory tariff theory. Okay. So uh, on that on that side, uh, they pick up as we were saying uh, on the CATS research. It's not mandatory, but they do on fair dealing. Yeah, uh, yeah. largely so on, up, uphold what the federal court, ex- what the trial judge had to say. Exactly, they they did, um, and so they would delved into that fair dealing question, um, and did again did establish or did find that. York couldn't um, couldn't 
couldn't make the fair dealing case and also couldn't make the fair dealing case with respect to its guidelines. So they did not grant that declaration that was sought. Okay. So we've got, so both sides now, of course, have reason uh, to be unhappy. Uh, York on the fair dealing issue, access copyright on the tariff and whether it's mandatory issue. And so unsurprisingly, now we head to the Supreme Court of Canada. There was a hearing in May. So as we're saying, it's all this has moved really quickly once uh, from the stage of hearing till the outcome uh, where rough where these are the issues that are, are largely litigated. And you add to the mix a very large number of interveners, really large numbers on both sides. 17 uh, you, in total, I think. <laughs> it was it was quite amazing yeah. to see one after another uh, yeah. come through, you know, for, with a whole series, of course, arguing positions that were sympathetic to access copyright, and then a whole series that were sympathetic to York and the educational perspective. You appeared as an intervener on behalf of the Canadian Association of Law Libraries. What, what was your focus? Yeah, so I, I should um, also clarify that when it came to the Supreme Court, it was in the format of two appeals, right? It was um, York appealed from the decision below and Access Copyright appealed from the decision below. And the Canadian Association of Law Libraries decided not to participate in the mandatory tariff question. Um, our association includes law, law libraries that are part of the educational sector for certain, that's a, a large percentage of our um, members, but we also include um, law, law libraries that are not in the educational sector, and so for whom the tariff is not really relevant. The, the other thing, frankly, is we we know that we knew that that was being quite fully addressed by other interveners as well as, of course, by York. So our, our focus was really, you know, we our members are are law libraries and people who work in law libraries, and. Um, we were concerned about the kinds of materials that law libraries hold. Um, we were also concerned about access to justice and uh, whether um, a narrow construction of fair dealing, something that retreated from CCH and did, did not, um, you know, was a retreat from the user rights focus, whether that would be harmful for access to justice, whether that would be harmful for the ultimate users of the materials in law libraries. Um, and we also wanted to uh, get a sense, you know, to, to make a case for guidelines, not specifically York's guidelines. We didn't really want to speak to the merits of that. We wanted to, we wanted to make a case that guidelines are really helpful. And, you know, as someone who works in and directs uh, a law library, I know that it's not lawyers, it's not university council who are standing there, you know, making an assessment of whether a particular dealing is fair. That's not possible. It's, it's uh, library staff, uh, generally speaking, who are doing the copying, and we need to supply guidelines. It's really important for us to be able to ensure that copying is done fairly, and um, we want to, to reiterate the importance of guidelines in general as a, as a way to achieve that, and that it's consistent with um, the holding in CCH. Um, and then, you know, fourth, overall, we just wanted to ensure that the um, court was aware about, um, you know, the prospect of unintended consequences should fair dealing be uh, retreated from or narrowed in uh, the kinds of materials or the kinds of use that that could happen. Um, so again, we didn't we didn't participate in um, in the access copyright appeal and the mandatory license question. We were there to um, to speak about fair dealing. 
Okay. Uh, all of that in five minutes. So yeah. not, a lot, not, not a lot of time to make your case, but uh, I know that you did it well. Lots uh, of editing, I, lots of editing. I, there's there's got to be, there's just not a lot, there's not a lot of time. You got to be able to focus on, on the core issues that matter the most. Uh, I, I want to come back to what the court had to say on guidelines, because it does make an important reference to guidelines. But um, why don't we quickly go through what the court had to say. As mentioned off the top, they come back with the decision very, very quickly. It's typically, the average is usually six months. This comes back in just over two. Mm-hmm. Um, how did how did the court address the really the, the couple of key issues? First on, I know you didn't participate specifically or intervene specifically on the mandatory tariff issue, but what did the court have to say on that? Well, you know, again, Professor Katz really deserves a lot of credit there. They The court relied heavily on his scholarship. And in fact, um, the day that I read the case, I just emailed Ariel uh, right away and I said, it must be incredibly gratifying to see your words. Uh, used in in the resulting reasons, it, it really it, it focused on that question that you know essentially if a party that chose not to be bound by the tariff by a collective license, um, it didn't want to participate in that process. Nothing in the way that the the um, collective society provisions of the licensing act, um, even the board certification, nothing could. Re- that or have that tariff or license forced upon a party. And, um, you know, it, it's, um, it, it almost makes some sense when you, when you think about it and stepping back of the, you know, unintended consequences of that ruling had that not happened. And um, it, it, uh, it, it really, the court went into great depth on the legislative history, the legislative purpose of those collective licensing, collective society provisions, and and really did just affirm that um, they are not mandatory uh, on on someone who just happens to copy something in their repertoire. And they pointed to what could be triggered, you know, the the, the enormous fees that could be triggered by one piece of copying that might have been offside. How did the court grapple with the, the fair dealing issue? Yes. So that was the interesting question from our perspective. Obviously, we participated in that, but but also because there were some persuasive arguments that fair dealing didn't really exist as, as a question to be litigated in this case at this point, if the if the tariff were voluntary. Um, it, uh, it it was it was interesting to me that the court agreed with that perspective. But um, found it necessary to correct errors of law in the in the it, by both courts below and um, the error one of the great errors of law that actually was gratifying to us um, the Canadian Association of Law Libraries gratifying to to read the court write about was um, the uh, the lack of emphasis or the insufficient emphasis on the end user perspective. Of fair dealing is again as interpreted by CCH, and it was uh, you know they said they really affirmed the, the court's own prior jurisprudence on this question uh, that fair dealing is a user's right, and in uh, the context of institutional copying, you can't ignore the institution's activities, but at the same time, you cannot you cannot um, ignore the the ultimate purpose of, of fair dealing. And, uh, and, you know, so it, it corrected some errors of the court below in terms of the, the application of that test. And I think that was really sort of the ultimate, um, the ultimate outcome of their reasons is, 
reiterating the, the user rights perspective. Yeah, it definitely is a, a really strong affirmation of what we've seen in the pre prior case law. It's some, in some ways it's, it's, it's frustrating a little bit to see the same issues get relitigated and questioned again and again in the court, despite the fact that we've seen a significant turnover in the court. There, there was no member of the court from CCH still on this decision, but the consistency, I think, over now, That's right. uh, more than 15 years is quite remarkable. I mean, it's yes. just, it's quite clear that the this is where the court is and yes. has, and it, that's, that has run through many different judges and and they haven't wavered really at all the you you focused as you mentioned on the guidelines issue did the court highlight how did the court highlight the the issue of guidelines in the decision so on, on the question of guidelines so again the, the court didn't go into depth on the on fair dealing they didn't feel that they had the proper um, factual matrix anymore or the proper uh, arguments the proper parties weren't before it um, again, access copyright, not having a right to litigate on behalf of a copyright owner. Um, you know, however, it did get into this important question of addressing whether there were serious errors that could not really stand on the record. And, and I'm, I'm, again, gratified that they did that. I'm also gratified that they spoke about guidelines, even though they didn't speak in great, uh, at great length about fair dealing at all but did recognize that you know, guidelines as one factor that had been set out in CCH remains a relevant factor. And, and so that was, that was important to the Canadian Association of Law Libraries to see, as well yeah. as I'm sure to many in the educational sector. Yeah, precisely. I think it's, its value really extends to many because of course, just given, given the importance of, of, the, of that user right, of fair dealing, guidelines become an important way that, that gets implemented for so many. Mm -hmm. um, what, were, what were your thoughts broadly on the decision? Were you surprised uh, either by the speed or the outcome or any, any other aspects of the decision? Definitely surprised by the speed. <laughs> I was pleased by it, but I was definitely surprised. Um, it, uh, you know, and I, I thought the, the reasons were authored by Justice Abella and um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that she invested the time into that before uh, before she steps down from the court. Um, but I'm not I'm not surprised by I'm not surprised by the decision on the voluntary versus mandatory tariff. I I had read um, Ariel's scholarship and I had you know thought about that question and Justice Abella did go on at length again about the history of of licensing and um, the emergence of that as a legislative avenue for permissions. She, she went into great depth on that. Um, and I think, but I think honestly, anyone who steps back from the situation and looks at it from the perspective of what it could mean for licensing generally, to have somebody have a license, uh, the terms of a license, which is really what the tariff is, forced upon them when they're not necessarily even aware of it. And, you know, as someone who has worked in a library that was for a time covered by uh, access copyrights license, to even delve into the repertoire and discover which works are, are part of the repertoire is a, is a great challenge. And that's for someone who actually knows about it. So, you know, stepping back, it's, it seems like the most reasonable, <laughs> the most reasonable outcome. And I, I tend to find that the court's decisions tend toward reasonable outcomes in practice. I think that's uh, certainly unsurprisingly. I, I agree with you. I mean, it just never made sense to me to say uh, that someone would be forced into a license in the way that Access Copyright envisioned or argued that the law 
functioned and it was good to see the court pick up on that you know there, there'll be of course a, a lot of discussion coming out of this on what this means more broadly for for education educational copying we've now had multiple decisions that have all gone in the same direction do you have a, a sense of for an expectation or even a guess as to, to where things may be headed now is is this it's kind of the end or uh, or is, is access copyright likely to continue to find either lobby avenues with respect to lobbying or even further litigation possible? Well, I have no crystal ball, um, but I, you know, there, I don't think the story is quite done. And one of the reasons I say that is the, um, you know, the intersection of the educational copying provisions of the, of the 2012 amendments um, with fair dealing was not actually part of this case. Uh, the fair dealing question was not evaluated by the court, by the, by the Supreme Court. Um, they corrected errors, but they didn't get into uh, analysis of the case because the proper parties weren't before it. There, were, there was no owner of copyright before it to, um, to, for there to you know, give rise to an infringement action that, could, that fair dealing could serve as a, as a defense for. So will there be a, another case i would say probably it you know and and perhaps perhaps a class action perhaps you know um a similar kind of context to cch where you know there may be some publishers or some copyright owners put forward as a representative um author or copyright holder to test these questions that's that's one possibility um it is really hard to say. And as far as access copyrights future, that may be an option. Um, you know, they may be able to um, reform themselves again for the modern uh, for the modern uh, educational institution. Um, again, they emerged from Can Copy, which was really very paper focused, and you know, they morphed into something that dealt heavily with course packs and uh, that kind of bulk copying. So perhaps, perhaps they will morph into something else that may may represent authors directly. I'm really not certain what their what their goals are, but it's I think it's pretty hard for them to be a viable collective society, except perhaps for smaller institutions that may not have the resources to invest in, um, in ensuring copying is done on side of copyright law, or who may not be subscribing to many licenses to acquire resources through other means. Yeah, so of, of limited value for, especially the many of the larger institutions that are also potentially the source of the largest amount of revenue, who it's, it, it feels like have in many ways moved on. It's just the, the marketplace has, has emerged to allow for more efficient, effective licensing that results yeah. in payment, but uh, just not payment through the access copyright intermediary. And, and it is true, again, as someone who, uh, manages a law library and sees our budget and manages our budget, we pay enormous amounts for educational materials that we provide to students. And a whole separate arena has developed under this. We use um, learning management systems to ensure that copying, reproduction, um, and links to licensed material are provided only for the, you know, the strict purposes of, of learning and teaching in the classroom. Uh, whether it's in a virtual classroom, as you know, many schools did this past year, uh, or whether it's in an in a in-person classroom, mechanisms have been adopted to ensure that um, 
that copyright holders are getting compensated and they're getting compensated quite a lot. So the, the other thing that's changed, of course, is that in, in this time, um, fair dealing has come a long way. Uh, those responsible for making decisions about fair dealing are much more informed than they used to be. Even York's own guidelines have changed and a lot of work, a lot of time and resources and legal knowledge are, is going into developing those guidelines. Um, even Professor Katz held a symposium back in uh, 2012, I think it was, where um, guidelines were, you know, it was a, a workshop in, in some ways, it was a, an opportunity for those who work in this area to share ideas and think about ideas about what should be fair, what could be fair. And, and that one had the opportunity of the 2012 amendments too to look at and, and adapt guidelines to. So things have come a long way, uh, mm -hmm. both in the courts and within the education community. And uh, I guess it's the, these issues are, are, are going to continue, but uh, it's certainly been moving, I think, in one direction, one of, of greater choice and an emphasis in over fair dealing, something that's been recognized both by politicians, of course, and now also by the Supreme Court yet again. Yet again. And guidelines yet again. Yeah, fair enough. True enough. Uh, Kim, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, you're most welcome. It was my pleasure, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm -hmm.